Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the Northern Agenda podcast, coming to you from Reach, the people behind the Newcastle Chronicle and Journal, Manchester Evening News and Yorkshire Live. This is the podcast for anyone who wants to find out what's going on in Northern politics from a distinctly Northern perspective. I'm Northern Agenda editor Rob Parsons, bringing you another instalment of news and analysis in a week where politics as normal returned with a bang. With Liz Truss's new Transport Secretary, hailing from the North East, we hear on this week's episode from Newcastle MP Catherine McKinnell about why Anne-Marie Trevelyan needs to finally unlock the potential of the East Coast Main Line that connects the region with London and Yorkshire. And I spoke to Claire Haywood, who chairs the Cheshire and Warrington Local Enterprise Partnership about what the North can offer to our new Prime Minister to help her government deliver for the whole country. But first, let's look ahead to this weekend where, barring some unforeseen events, the eyes of the political world will be on Liverpool as the annual Labour conference comes to town. The party will head to Liverpool on an election footing, solidly ahead of the Conservatives in the polls, but with delegates looking to Keir Starmer to see how he'll respond to the very different challenge of facing Liz Truss rather than Boris Johnson as Prime Minister. And we've got a great guest to take us through what we can expect from the next four days in the form of South Shield's own Kevin Maguire, Associate Editor of the Daily Mirror. Kevin, it's nice to have you on. Yeah, it's great to be on. I enjoy listening, so it's uh, good to appear. Great, great uh, for you to come on with us. So just as a scene setter, for you as a political journalist, you've got a few party conferences under your belt for people who don't go along to them. I mean, do, do you enjoy these events? Are they a part of the political calendar you look forward to, or is it just something you kind of have to tolerate and before you can get back get back home again I, I was counting them and i think with all political parties and trade union conferences i must be now topping a hundred in my life that's a, a lot of days yeah and a lot of nights i'll never get back a lot of sausage rolls you'll have eaten and warm white wine you'll have consumed in that time i tell you there is a, there is the conference off stone you've got to be aware of with cooked breakfast <laughs> and too much beer in the evening and sandwiches and sausage rolls as you see in between they're festival of politics, that's what they are. Um, you just get a huge collection of people. You'll get uh, MPs, ministers, hangers-on, journalists, lobbyists, uh, trade unionists, uh, and there's a, a ferment of ideas. And do I enjoy them? Not as much as I used to, it's got to be said. In some ways, I think they go on too long now. Um, they've been, they're shorter than they were, say, 20 years ago, when they'd last a week. Now they tend to be four or five days. But I always think you could do it over a weekend. I suppose the novelty wears off. My younger colleagues will love propping up hotel bars until two or three in the morning. But now I tend to be in bed by Cinderella o'clock and ask them in the morning what, uh, what happened. Were there any fights, big arguments? What did you see? But, uh, in, a, in a local area, though, that's a lot of money because there'll be thousands of people going to Liverpool for the Labour conference. Yeah. I've got to say, as someone who gets up at 5.45 every morning to write a 
morning politics newsletter. I, I don't expect to be uh, propping up the bar at two in the morning or it'd probably uh, be reflected in the quality of my work the next day. Yeah, well, I do the same because I go on Good Morning Britain on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesdays about 20 past six and, you know, on ITV1. And that, that does mean you, you don't want to have a horrible hangover because you've got a, <laughs> you've got a long working day ahead. But, you know, the young yeah. ones, you know what they're like. Absolutely. So it's been a few weeks, I think, where for various reasons, we've not heard a huge amount from the Labour Party. I mean, I guess it's fairly obvious why. But are you expecting this conference to be a big, splashy one full of policy announcements? Or will it be quite low key, given that they maybe think that the government is doing enough harm to its own prospects with its with its various announcements? Yeah, if your opponents are beating themselves up, don't intervene in the fight. Uh, now, I think uh, Keir Starmer and Labour have, have got to seize the moment. They in the running before the uh, summer when they backed the freezing of uh, uh, energy bills, of the cap, and we're going to pay for it for a, with a windfall tax. An idea, it's got to be said, the Liberal Democrats were the first national party to propose, but Labour, Labour took it, ran with it. The government had to move over to some extent to to follow it and you can see how the Tory leadership contest to get to replace um, Boris Johnson all those blue on blue attacks they squeeze out Labour too and then of course you had the death of a hereditary monarch and, and 10 days of uh, total media coverage but you've got to seize the moment and Keir Starmer he's got to come up with emotional vivid reasons to vote Labour and some real practical policy ideas to capture the public imagination and show how you will, as a party, if you're in government, will improve lives of people. You can't just rely on your opponents to lose the election, however well the Conservatives are doing at that currently. Because Labour is lost in 2010, lost in 2015, lost in 2017, lost heavily in 2019. It's got down to a fifth defeat. Unless it can convince people it's time to give Labour a, a chance. And one of the slogans at the conference is a, a fresh start with Labour. Well, what does that fresh start mean? In contrast to maybe the, the, the recent few years, there's clear, clear blue water, isn't there, uh, ideologically between Labour and the Conservatives. And like, I saw you tweeting about it earlier on issues like fracking. Like there's a very clear choice between what the Conservatives are proposing, or at least the Conservative government is proposing, not necessarily its MPs and Labour. So in some respects, it's the divide between the two main parties is is as clear as it has been in, in recent years. Yeah, there's, get, there's getting deeper blue water, thicker red lines between the two parties now, because Truss is a very right wing ideological conservative leader who believes in cutting the state and in deregulation and what she calls lower taxes, mainly lower taxes for incredibly wealthy people and big corporations who coincidentally just fund the Tory party and backed her, her campaign. But no, those, those gaps are there and Labour's got to exploit them. For instance, on fracking, you mentioned, deeply unpopular. Uh, now, the, the Conservatives might try and hold it out as a solution to the energy crisis. Well, it won't be because whenever it's produced, it won't be for many years that it would be produced will just be sold on the world market. It'll make a killing for the producers, but it's not really going to help people in Britain, never mind the wider climate change question about weaning ourselves off carbon fuels. And of course, anybody who uh, is going to have fracking in that area will oppose it because it's a huge industrial complex that can pollute water supplies. It can create earth tremors. You'll have lorries 
trundling in and out. I think Truss, in her ideological zeal, has made a big mistake on fracking, and she'll fracture her own party because of it. But Labour, I think Liberal Democrats, Greens, other parties, I think on the right side of the argument by being against it, well, I think the, the Tories, with their U-turn, because they were opposed to it, with their U-turn now embracing it, have made a rod for their own back. Yeah, I mean, we're recording this on Thursday afternoon and uh, there's been keeping an eye on some of the some quite fiery uh, exchanges in the Commons between Jacob Rees-Mogg and some of the Northern Tory MPs in areas like Lancashire and East Yorkshire who might be getting the brunt of the anger from their from their own constituents if fracking does go ahead. So he's put them in uh, in quite a difficult position. Yeah, uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg won't want fracking in his leafy bit of uh, Somerset He'll want it in parts of Northern England, away from away from uh, him. But you're right; the uh, fire of the Conservative MPs who are opposed to it is ferocious. In this political battle, Labour might be the opposition, but the enemy are now the Tories, who are furious with uh, with Smug. Oh, it's very it's very interesting to watch it. The more the more trust goes down this road the more she will begin to split our own party and our own vote, and that creates space for Labour. But Labour, by opposing fracking, has taken a position, so you know what they would do or not do in this case, but they have to do that on almost every other issue. It's not just enough to say, you're not the Conservatives, you wouldn't do what they would do. What would you do to show you were on the side of people to get them to vote? And that's what, that's what Starmer has to do in Liverpool. He's got to set out his stall, his big speeches on... Tuesday afternoon, Labour had an experiment of following the other parties of having it on the uh, Wednesday morning, the final day of the conference. But he's gone back to the future um, with a Tuesday afternoon, and he's he's got to set his stall out. He's got to he's got to excite people. He's got to get them going because he doesn't do that. He doesn't often touch a nerve. He's got it right on the energy price cap freeze and the windfall tax on the blood profits of North Sea producers who are just raking in cash because. Putin invaded Ukraine, sent prices um, soaring. It wasn't because of their ingenuity or innovation or investment. They just got these huge ex. And he got the mood on that, but he needs to do it repeatedly. It's not good enough just to do it once in a while. You have to do it um, every day or at least every week. Now, one thing we know he is doing, uh, or at least he is reported to be doing, is approving plans for God Save the King to be sung uh, at the start of conference. I'm guessing this is one you might have an opinion on. Uh, I, I suspect he feels it will be in keeping with the public mood. But I mean, what, what do you think party members will make of it? Oh, my God. I think he's misread the public mood. Well, look, we're not, we're not a country where you have to show your patriotism by singing the national anthem all the time at events. Um, I think he's taken a very high tariff dive in his uh, little bit of uh, patriotic fervour. Um, he was a youthful Republican, but he's fully signed up. I was surprised when I read in the Sunday Mirror that he, his Labour government was ready to serve King Charles III. Hang on, shouldn't King Charles III be serving the country? I know there's a constitutional nonsense about uh, you being Her Majesty's opposition, Her Majesty's uh, government, or His Majesty's uh, opposition, His Majesty's government as, as now. But I think he's, he's taken a big risk. Because Labour is a monarchist party. It's always been a monarchist party, uh, but it has a 
strong, roundhead Republican streak in it. Um, George Lansbury, uh, who was probably the most left-wing leader in Labour's history, it was very much against the monarch, but it was a distraction attacking it. The great beast of balls over Dennis Skinner was a die-hard Republican, but he described the royal family as little monsters and said it was always monsters you had to slay, such as, such as poverty. But by doing this, though, uh, he risks empty seats. He risks people not singing. He risks people waiting to dash in afterwards. Uh, one Shadow Cabinet member and the Shadow Cabinet have been told they must all sit in a certain area and then stand and sing when it is played. One, uh, one Shadow Cabinet member uh, asked me, um, will he have to learn the second verse? because he doesn't know what it is, and he didn't want to repeat John Redwood, the conservative Welsh secretary back in the day, who was seen miming the Welsh uh, national anthem because he didn't know the words. Uh, no, I think, uh, I, know, I know what he's intended to do, Keir Starmer, but I think it could backfire on him. He'll have to cross his fingers and cross his legs and just hope they all turn. I can see a lot, because um, I've spoken to several uh, who will stay out of the hall until God save the king is out, is out of the way. There's no, there's no doubt there was huge um, affection and respect for the queen. I'm not sure there is for Charles. People might have loved the queen, but they only like Charles. Yeah, it's uh, interesting. The potential to backfire is, uh, is it will be one to watch. And the final question, Kevin, just looking at some of the fringe events at the conference, it looks like there's going to be quite a lot about uh, levelling up uh you know the whole issue of regional inequalities and uh, lisa nandy the shadow leveling up secretaries making quite a few appearances i see i mean is that a policy area you're expecting or hoping to hear a lot about from labor given the concerns widely held concerns that the conservative government is backing away from the idea whatever whatever it meant under boris johnson that they're, they're not pursuing it in quite the same way anymore yeah lisa nandy the wigan warrior is one of labor's best communicators and campaigners, people like her and Lou Higg from Sheffield, Joe Stevens from Cardiff, are just really, really effective, uh, common sense, pragmatic left-wing politicians. And it was never really more than a slogan uh, under Johnson levelling up. We didn't see any real evidence of it, but Nandy sees it as a way of genuine levelling up and genuinely campaigning and delivering for, for working people in often left behind or kept behind towns as a way of labour reconnecting with those red wall seats. So she'll, she'll take it for all it's worth. You'll see, you'll see a lot of that. And the two politics at conferences, not just Labour in Liverpool, but others, they're on the fringe, really. They're not in the main hall. In the main hall, speeches by front benches have to be approved by the leader's office in advance. They're seen, they're, they're scripted. But you get debate on the fringe and Labour has its official fringe, which is uh, which is huge. There's also uh, one of the meetings is on uh, Labour for a Republic, uh, which will be rather interesting uh, in you know the context of the recent uh, change in the hereditary monarchy. Um, then you have the world transformed outside of Labour, which is some people who are in the Labour Party on the left, some who are not, and anyone can go along to that. You don't need uh, a, a pass. So it is, it's a bit, it's a big discussion of ideas and you'll get those on the fringe. And I think somebody like Nandy pulls in a crowd, Angela Rayner pulls in a crowd. You're more likely to get, uh, to, to get, to get the ideas and the interest there 
than just sitting in a hall listening um, to bits and standing orders, motions, and so on. But no, I think le- leveling up, Labour should be committed to, to leveling up. If Labour's committed to anything in a fairer, decent, more prosperous country with social justice, you will have to focus on the north and those parts of the south, of course, whether you're in Kent or London or Cornwall, that are all like bits of the north in the south where people are, are struggling too. Because not, not all the south is rich, not all the north is poor, but you want a fairer country, you got to deliver. Absolutely. Well, we'll leave it there. Kevin Maguire, thank you for speaking to us today. Now, there was a slightly embarrassing moment for the Coventry MP Zara Sultana this week, who blamed a delay on the LNER service from London to Leeds on the privatisation of the country's rail services, only to discover that the train line she was travelling on had in fact been renationalised in 2018. The 393 mile East Coast main line that LNER trains run on connects the North East and Scotland with Yorkshire and London and is one of the country's most important strategic rail routes. But critics say it suffers from unreliability and delays that blight its performance and hold back economic growth in the areas it serves. The new Transport Secretary, Anne-Marie Trevelyan, is a North East MP herself, but as train cancellations in the UK reach their highest level on record, will she be able to improve the performance of the former routes of the Flying Scotsman and the Mallard? One of those critics is Newcastle North MP Catherine McKinnell, who, as chair of the East Coast Mainline All-Party Parliamentary Group, has called for the new Transport Secretary to unlock the East Coast Mainline's potential by delivering on promises to invest in the route. Catherine, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's nice to have you on. So what's going wrong with the East Coast Mainline in your view? So, as you said, it is a strategic route. Um, but in its current state, it really is holding our communities back right up and down the line. But for me, particularly in the northeast, and we knew it was at capacity pre-pandemic, um, and there are a lot of discussions and debates around the pandemic that we would see changes in commuter patterns, we would see changes in the way people work and people working from home. But actually, in reality, I think people are really wanting to get places and to see people and to meet up and to catch up on all of the um, holiday and visit plans that they've had and they want to use our train system and we are just seeing as you very well described an increasing pattern of delays and unreliability and I think that's the big challenge that if you can't rely on the railway then you'll find other ways to get places that you can rely on and that's bad for the people who need the train it's bad for our environment um, and, it, and it's bad for business because they'll find alternative ways to try and do things because they can't rely on being able to get to where they need to be now the east coast mainline has been in you know it's been it's been a subject of uh, of some debate for a few years and it emerged last summer that timetable changes that were going to improve journey times and you know have more routes from London to different parts of the north had been put on hold for at least a year in a bid to prevent a repeat of the chaos that hit the north's railways in 2018. So what what's going on with that now as far as you're aware? Have they, I assume those changes still haven't materialised? So the change in the timetable is very much to do with the fact we have these new Azuma trains 
and they can carry more passengers, they can um, travel in more upgraded modern ways than perhaps the current timetable is uh, providing for. But it also, there were definite winners and losers in that process. And I think one of the things we really have to get right in this discussion and debate, and I think as an all party group, this is what we're trying to lead on, that it's not always about getting somewhere five minutes quicker. It's about it being reliable, it being sustainable, and also it bringing as many people on the communities that live up and down the line with them. So some trains, yes, will be non-stop to London, and that gets you there very fast. Some trains need to stop at more local stations, and we also need to see that connecting into those local stations so that it's viable for lots of people to be able to use the train. And I think a lot of that is missing from this whole conversation. And um, so I think it's good that we've avoided chaos, which we have seen in other timetable uh, reorganizations. But I think we're also missing big opportunities here of not maximizing the benefits of all that investment in the Azuma trains, um, because we're not seeing this timetable that's going to, to use them to their best advantage. But I think one of the big challenges that we have is on the East Coast mainline is a real bottleneck um, between um, in North Allerton and Newcastle, where we, we were reduced to two tracks. So normally um, on most of the line, you have additional tracks and you can run freight, you can run passenger trains, you can divert if there's a problem, there's a bit of resilience in the system. Whereas we're down to two tracks, which is why there's been a big campaign to reopen the Leam side line to try and relieve some of that. But also generally, we've been promised 3.5 billion pounds of upgrades to the line, but we've not seen the details of what any of those upgrades will be. But really that's where we need to see some of the key investment because yes, I would advocate for the Northeast, I always do, but actually it's for the whole line because we saw um, you know, uh, signal problems in Stevenage cause problems in the Northeast, cause problems in Scotland. If one bit of the line goes wrong, the whole line goes wrong. So we need to really see that pipeline of investment because in reality, we haven't seen proper investment in the East Coast mainline since it was electrified in 1991. And then as we've seen the HS2 proposals, that meant we would have to upgrade this Northeast bit of the East Coast mainline to fit in with the HS2 plans so that we could benefit from them. They've now scrapped the Eastern leg of that despite all their promises that they wouldn't. So our concern is that they're gonna scrap those investments that we need in the East Coast mainline as well with it. And that's really what we're campaigning for the government and now our, our new Northeast Transport Secretary to really come up and, 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 and deliver on the promises, but really deliver in detail as well. We want to see what those plans are. We want to see them soon. Obviously, I, I feel like there's no, there's no one from the government or Network Rail on this uh, in this interview. So just to put what they might say if they were here, obviously Network Rail, which is responsible for our rail infrastructure, I think they might say that uh, they might tell us about the remodelling of King's Cross Station to improve the route performance and big investments to cut journey times and create thousands of extra seats. And I, I gather that just this month, there's upgrades to the track in and around the Newcastle area, which they say will help create a much more modern and reliable railway i mean is that is that not a sign that things are going in the right direction or do you want to see more and more specifics on on, on the things that i've just mentioned 
Yeah, I want to see more specifics. I think any improvements, any works that they do are completely welcome. But I feel like we're kind of making do and mending and we're patching up where in reality we need that serious pipeline of investment and we need it much quicker than is being promised. And we have been promised for many years um, that we will be invested in on the East Coast mainline, but we haven't seen the results of that. And, And we can see it's um, the pattern of major incidents that keep happening on the line and each time you think fine yeah okay I understand that you know that's unavoidable that's a natural issue that's um, to do with the weather that's to do with um, you know a signal failure but it's it's time and time again that these are impacting on people's journeys and I think whilst we're tra- playing catch up really with the East Coast Mainline we're not actually building that transport network of the future that actually should be not just trying to get the East Coast mainline right, but connecting in all the communities that would benefit from it. And we would unlock so much economic potential if we were able to connect people in better to the East Coast mainline. There are so many communities up and down the line that would choose to drive or travel in different ways because it's just not convenient really or reliable at the moment to travel up and down on the East Coast mainline. And that's obviously creating pollution, it's holding businesses back, it's driving investment elsewhere. Um, And I think one of the things we've seen is a lot of investment go into the West Coast. Um, And and obviously I welcome any investment that comes North, but I worry that for the Northeast, we are geographically located um, quite distant from London and we, we can get there in a fast amount of time if you are in Newcastle, for example, or Darlington. But if you're anywhere else in our region, it's a long journey to, to connect in to that major strategic route to London. So I think we really need to work on our east-west connections. We need to work in our, on our community connections. And I know this is about rail, but it links into buses as well. And we've seen big challenges in our region with buses, shortages of bus drivers, buses being cancelled routes being cancelled. So I think the whole thing needs a really strategic overview and investment. And obviously that all lands on the table of our new transport Secretary of State. And I really hope as a Northeast Secretary of State that we can really try and make some progress on these issues for our region. And have you had a chance to talk to uh, Anne-Marie Trevelyan about this since she took office? Well, obviously we've had a um, an unusual start to this new administration. Um, and we haven't been sitting in Parliament, today's the first day. So I have written to her though, and um, put very clearly the case for the East Coast Mainline, um, which uh, I really hope that she's not only receptive to, but really serious about delivering on, because that's the thing, we've heard many promises over the last 12 years. We've heard lots of big numbers, we've heard lots of big ideas, We've also seen those scrapped and reversed, parked and sidelined. And I think it's it's such a short-sighted thing to not invest in this vital infrastructure because it will be a revenue raiser for the country if we have a decent train service that connects in all the communities to it and connects us to where we need to go, wherever that is. It might be London, it might be York, it might, we need to get over to Manchester. We need all of that um, infrastructure investment to get us up to Scotland as well. Let's connect us all up and let's get us able to, um, you know, build build on um, what is, you know, such an important time to create revenue, really, 
so that we can pay for all the things we need to pay for that we want to see in this country. But we're holding people back from even being able to do business and get places. Um, and so I think we need much long-sighted uh, action on this and, and proper promises as well that, that, that can be held to account, understood and delivered on. And I think that's the problem. We see big numbers, but no detail. Catherine McKinnell, thank you very much for speaking to us today. Thank you. Now, we know the new Prime Minister, Liz Truss, grew up in the north of England, as she mentioned it just a few dozen times during the Tory leadership campaign. But as she gets to grips with the mammoth task in front of her in tackling the energy crisis, turning round our struggling economy and restoring our battered public services, what can our region in the north offer her government by way of help? To find out, let's speak to Claire Haywood, who chairs the Cheshire and Warrington Local Enterprise Partnership, the body that leads the growth of that area's economy through a powerful partnership between the private, public and voluntary sectors. As well as being a leadership consultant, Claire is also on the board of the NP11, which brings together all the North's local enterprise partnerships to provide a voice for the North as a whole. So Claire, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. And you, Nazmi. Thank you. Thank you for coming on. Now, it seems like <laughs> quite a long time now since uh, Liz Trust took office given that everything that's happened but what a start <laughs> i know it, it's it, it's been quite an unusual first uh few weeks hasn't it for her as prime minister but uh, at the start of it you at the np11 wrote to her asking her to uh support i guess you could call it a five-point plan there's sort of five offers from what the north could do and five asks uh, of what you want from from the government to unlock the North's full potential. Can you just give us a bit of a summary of, of, of that, what you what, what you said to the Prime Minister and why you think this is the answer at this point in time? Yes, of course. Obviously, key themes coming through from Liz Truss's um, agenda, and she's really placed a huge emphasis on high growth and improving productivity. And we believe the North has a critical role in, in ensuring that that is the case. So what are the our key offers and asks of the North is that we can help with that and actually lead that. So we can help with developing a secure, resilient energy supply. So we're in a very positive position to be able to lead on the UK's green industrial revolution. We really want to make sure that we are developing the North Life Sciences Supercluster and at the moment, we have placed a huge emphasis on that sector because we can demonstrate already that we are exporting and that we have the innovation required in that sector. We also know that we can support the Global Britain agenda by continuing to build on the Global North agenda. So that's really critical because what we've identified is that people are very proud and they want to make sure that the North is a strong player and continues to be a strong player. So we want to harness that energy. And some of that energy and pride comes through in the fact that you've got Northern businesses are very prepared to invest in R&D. And what we really need from government is to ensure that they match that investment that the businesses in the North are prepared to make. And the other one is really making sure that we 
are at the front of being a digital leader, being a digital leader in the UK, but also we need to be a digital leader on a global basis as well. So really sort of five key offers. One is, you know, let us play our part in developing that secure, resilient energy supply, making sure that we're in a really good position for the, to be the Northern Life Science Supercluster, play our role in being the global North, harnessing everybody's pride in place, and also making sure that we are at the forefront of being a world-class digital leader. It's a compelling offer, some some might say, but uh, I guess a lot of people might listen to the, the, those five offers and say they sound uh, great, but perhaps it's for the government a lot of public money to be spending to realise these goals when the economy and the public finances are not in a very good state at the moment. I mean, how how do you make the case to Liz Truss and her government that this is an investment that's worth making at this point in time? Yeah, that's a really good question. And when I spend time with businesses across the North, we are prepared to invest and our spend in the North actually matches that in London, i.e. businesses being prepared to invest in R&D, to be prepared to invest in innovation. But what we don't have currently is that being matched by government? And really what we're asking is, could we please just match match that? So it's a huge, huge gap. And what we really, all we're asking here is that we are in a position where government is continuing to invest in some of our essential infrastructure. That's both digital, that's physical, that's you know rail, road infrastructure, but also in our skills infrastructure, because we know that we have got the capability to deliver. And we've demonstrated that by being at the forefront of a lot of our green tech investment. And we are demonstrating that with some of the projects that a number of you may have become quite familiar in on the hydrogen, nuclear. And we need to make sure that we're backing businesses to ensure that that private sector investment continues. So it's a mixture of public and and private investment and support is what's going to make the big difference in the north that that, that's totally true now obviously the big political issue in the here and now is the cost of living crisis and in your role both at the NP11 I'm sure and Cheshire and Warrington you, you must be hearing from northern businesses all the time about the impact it's having on them both in the short term and perhaps might what what happened their, their you know their, their ability to grow in the longer term I mean what what, what are they what, what are you hearing what are they saying to you It's a a key issue. Uh, And as we know, an awful lot of businesses are very concerned about the increase, particularly on the energy uh, prices. So we're still waiting to hear. We're expecting a fiscal event of some description um, to enable government to support businesses as well as the commitments that they've made to consumer. And what is quite interesting is when you look at how inflation impacts both the north and the south quite often you will find it impacts the north more and there's a variety of different reasons for that one is the you will find that because of our transport infrastructure that people are more reliant on their cars to to get around the region and therefore that increases the percentage that they're spending on fuel Also, because of the um, lower disposable income um, that we have in the north, the percentage that people can invest in improving some of their key elements around some of the core infrastructure, whether that's domestically or within business, 
actually means that they're on a little bit on the back foot on things such as um, you know, newer boilers, etc. So we are impacted more on when you're looking at an increase in inflation. So we've been hit on a number of different, different elements here. So what we're hearing is, yes, we're really keen to hear from government as soon as possible um, to know what it is that they're going to do to support businesses. Um, and what we understand is that they would back track that if they're um, not coming out with the plan for a, for a few weeks or even a month or so. So so that is encouraging. But also the other thing I'm always hearing from business is we need to be able to have confidence for the long term. So what we're really keen to hear from, from government is that the investments that are going to be made are longer term investments so that we can continue to invest in some of our big innovation projects that we can invest in secure resilient energy supply which we're in a very very strong position to be able to deliver on and, and as you may be aware we're already producing around 50 percent of the energy for for the uk but we also have a three of the six industrial clusters in the, in the north so we need to really have a strong investment plan but something that we can make sure is is well positioned for the future and that needs long-term thinking. And that is both be great to hear about the short term. So in terms of helping out on this particular energy crisis that we have today, but we also want to ensure that we have a longer term plan as well. And of course, Liz Truss uh, in her energy sort of announcement that she made a few days ago, she was talking about massively scaling up our ability to to provide our own energy. And we know that fracking is back on the agenda. That could be a quite controversial topic uh, in the North in, in the coming months. Um, but there's also a lot of examples of clean growth projects in the North, aren't we? You mentioned hydrogen uh, earlier, but can you just tell us about some of the clean growth projects that are happening in, in Northern England, which could potentially provide an answer to, to Liz Truss's desire for more homegrown energy. Yeah, and actually, um, what has been very positive is um, the government support that we've had with the two hydrogen clusters that we've got uh, in the north. So one in the northeast and one in the northwest. Um, so some of you may have heard of, of HiNet, uh, where we geographically are able to capture carbon and also be able to produce um, hydrogen. So we're in a really p- positive position um, in the north. And actually, we've also got Proteum Electrolyzer, um, which is over in um, on Teesside. So again, we've got some fantastic projects. And what we want to do as MP11 and across the Northern Powerhouse is make sure that we're enhancing that collaboration. So what is quite important is we're not seen to be competing against each other, which is how some of the government funding is set up currently, but actually we're competing to make the most of ensuring that we can deliver renewable green hydrogen energy across the North, but for the whole of the UK. And we're very well positioned to do that. And we've got some fantastic examples of actually being globally ahead on a number of these projects. So what we're wanting to do is ensure that we're building on that platform of innovation and the research and the development that organisations have invested in, and then making sure that we are supplying local manufacturers and then extending that out. So we're in a very good place um, as the North to make the most of some of the, the new green tech. That's really interesting. Now, one of the key 
offers in your your five uh, five points focuses on enabling the north to play its full part in a competitive global britain and part of that is supporting more northern businesses to export i mean how best do you think can that happen i mean i know that there is an issue that certain parts of the north don't export as many of their products as they do in the south in the southeast how do we how do we turn that situation around in your view there's probably a num- number of different elements um, which, we, which we've been um, discussing. So some, one of them is really reconfirming the commitment to 2.4% of GDP on R&D and also making sure that, that some of that comes to the north so that we are in a very good position to be the test bed for some of the inv- innovative investment that has taken place in the north. Also, we need to recognise, actually, in the North, particularly in some of the life sciences sector, um, we're already exporting significantly. And what we want to be able to do is to case study that and then make sure that we're expanding that capability across the sector, but also into other sectors so that we can continue to grow, innovate and then trade internationally. And we recognise that that does need a really good blend of support um, across the North. And some of that is about making sure that we're putting things in place, such as some business support schemes. So we're enabling um, people like the growth hubs across the LEPs to be able to promote and coordinate and help deliver that business support. But also making sure that we're working together to encourage more foreign direct investment into the North. And we've had some great examples of where we've been, we have gone out and raised our profile. It's really important that we raise the profile of the North, but raising our reputation globally. And also we do need to keep things as simple as possible so that businesses aren't getting too tied up in bureaucracy when it comes to actually exporting. So we do recognise that there are some better support packages in place now for businesses to enable that to happen but we really want to see that accelerate now finally and um, what what sense do you get claire about the new administration's enthusiasm for promoting the interests of of, of the north and regions outside london and the, the southeast obviously we've heard a bit about well what's been leaked about a potential plan to end the cap on bankers bonuses and perhaps for the government in general general to pursue a more sort of thatcherite free market approach to the economy. I mean, given everything we know about Liz Truss thus far and her policies, do do you feel there's reason to be optimistic about her listening to the voice of the North? Well, we know in the North, if the agenda is about growth and it's about productivity, we have got a critical role to play in ensuring that we can deliver that agenda. So that, for me, is is a really important part. we do need to work and in, in hand in hand and, and uh, collaborate because whether we are going to invest in the infrastructure, in Northern Power Rail, you know, finishing off HS2, making sure that we've got some good digital infrastructure in place, that is going to be really, really critical. We need full fibre broadband to every home by 2030. You know, we need a skill system that works and connects people with the opportunities across the North. So not a lot of this, we absolutely know what we need to deliver. So one of the elements is really about making sure that we're getting the the tools to deliver the prosperity for for the North 
and to the whole of the UK. This is about, you know, fairness and, and, and equality as opposed to anybody leveling down. Um, but get, making sure that we're looking at how do we get the funding into the right places is really important. And one of the other elements that I think is really important is that we are focused on evidence. So we look at the economic, economic evidence and we look at what's robust and we make sure that we're putting in really good business cases. Because when I look at the business cases across the North and the return on investment, we know that we have a critical role to play in ensuring that we can be a high growth, high productivity and a sustainable uh, UK. I mean, we have got... You know, some key targets that we've committed to as the UK on, on making sure that we get green energy in place, that we meet our net zero agenda. And it is about having a sustainable growth agenda, a green growth agenda, as well as a growth agenda. So we're really keen to work alongside the government to make sure that we put that in place. Claire Haywood, thank you so much for speaking to us today. Thank you, Rob. Thank you for listening to the Northern Agenda podcast. And don't forget, you can subscribe to our daily newsletter at thenorthernagenda.co.uk. It's more important than ever for Northern voices to be heard. The Northern Agenda is a laudable production for Reach. It's presented by me, Rob Parsons, and it's produced by Daniel J. McLaughlin. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to The Northern Agenda wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple and Spotify. Also, check out the other laudable podcasts. See you next week. Bye-bye.